Hello, how you doing? I'm Craig Parkinson. You are listening to the Two Shot Podcast. Sit yourself down, pop the kettle on. We're going to have a nice old chat. Who's it with this week? I'm going to tell you right now. How the devil are you? It's Thursday. You know it. It's the podcast. And it's episode 98 of the Two Shot Podcast. We are flying through them. Now, just before we get to this episode, I want to knit back to last week's episode. Because let's face it, it was an incredible, incredible conversation with Lem Say, And the response was unbelievable. A lot of you were very moved by it, obviously. Um, and a fair few people saying it's their favorite episode yet. So thank you so much. If you haven't listened to last week's episode 97, I urge you to go back and listen to it. I did have a few messages saying, Craig, I got halfway through it and I just had to stop. It was, it it was affecting me, but I am going to go back and listen to it. And that's fine. Just go back because yes, some of it is hard to listen to. Some of it's quite brutal. Uh, but it's all true. It's someone's journey. It's someone's life. It's someone's name and someone's childhood that was taken from him. They took that from him. But at the end of the episode, I think uh, there is sunshine. There is positivity. So do go back and listen to it and spread the word. And yeah, if you can go and buy Lem's book and read that, um, it's, it's an incredible, incredible reader. I've, I've been lucky enough to read it twice. Um, and I did before I, I spoke to Lem. And I'm really thankful that I did. Although it did get me quite angry, as as you may have heard from last week's podcast. Um, but on to this week's podcast now. So, how are you? How are things? If things aren't great at the moment, just just put put it to the side. But any any worries and questions and concerns, put them to the side. Put your feet up, run a bit faster on the treadmill, close your eyes on that commute because this is your time now. This is your podcast and just make this about yourself or rather let's make this about the life of Mark Strong because I was lucky enough to sit down with Mark for this episode. Now, you know Mark Strong He's an amazing actor. You'll have seen him certainly over the last few years in some absolutely massive blockbuster films. He's been in Kick-Ass, he's been in Shazam. I first encountered Mark. It was very inspiring for me growing up watching Mark in this. And it was a show called Our Friends in the North, which we touch on uh, in the episode. It is... It's landmark television. You go through history of, of television for the last 20, 30 years. Our Friends in the North will come up. No one had really seen anything like it. And it turns out, you know, with Mark and Daniel Craig and Christopher Eccleston and Gina McKee uh, filming it, they didn't really know what they were letting themselves in for, which you'll hear on the podcast this week. So, um, yeah, I think we should get down to it. So I went to meet Mark in London at a swanky club. He thought we were going to be, he was a bit disappointed. He said, I thought we were going to be downstairs in Maison Bateau. I said, I know, but somebody else had set up this meeting for us. So we sat down and we had a a good hour, I think a bit longer, talking with Mark. 
And, you know, we've seen him on stage, we've seen him on telly, we've seen him on film. But this podcast, as we know, week in, week out, is about the human journey and about who the person is. And we really get to know who Mark is. He is so lovely. And I mean, he's so, we already know he's a brilliant actor, but I'm sure you'll hear from this. I already know because I've been lucky enough to work with Mark. He is one of the loveliest men out there. I know they said lads then, I never say that. He's one of the loveliest blokes. So, um, yeah, do what you need to do and let's get down to it. This is episode 98 of the Two Shot Podcast with the phenomenal Mark Strong. Enjoy, and I'll see you in a bit. I used to play in the game, in the football, the game that I play in on a uh, Monday and a Friday morning. I was going to say, I thought, is that a North London one? Yeah. Yeah, There's a group so. of, uh, we, we play at 10 o'clock on a Monday, Friday morning, and I always say it's, a, it's a, basically a game for people who haven't got a proper job, because no one yeah. else can play at that time of the morning. No, of course. But it's such a privilege, you know, you go to work on the tube and everybody's, you know, suited up, tired, briefcases, you know, laptops, going to work and Mm. I'm in my football kit on a Monday morning and a Friday morning and I can't help thinking, yeah, you know, you've got to go to work, but I'm going to play football. It is amazing though, when those things happen, whatever you're doing, if you're, so everybody else is going one way, so to speak, and you're going another way and you have to check yourself and go... Yeah, this is a privilege. Yeah, it or, is a privilege. Or the fact that you go, right, I may have to go away for three months. Yeah. But then I know I've got a solid six weeks at home yeah. with the family and I can put all that time in and everybody else is doing that nine to five. Do you go away a lot? Um, Do you make a choice about whether you're going to or not? Well, sometimes the choice is taken right. out of your hand. Right. But I, if it was a choice, like I know a lot of people who go... I'm going to LA and I've got to do this in America and I'm away for eight months of the year. Yeah. I would find that really, really difficult. Yeah. Because uh, certainly when children are growing up at certain ages, well, any age really, if you're going away for the majority of the year, yeah. you can't get those times back, especially no, if that's they're right. really I've become young. really conscious of that as my boys have grown up. And I realised I, I, I went away quite a lot when they were, when they were younger, toddlers. Mm. And I kind of uh, console myself with the knowledge now that they're, teenagers that then they don't really they don't they're not really aware they don't really need you but when they get to teenagers they start making you know choices about life mm. sorting out friendships and you know the concepts of trust and love and betrayal and, and all problems, those kind of things yeah that's when they need you so do you make a conscious effort now not to do certain things yeah, like that i do i mean we 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 shot Temple and it was a big six month job and pretty much since then I've tried to be available to them because I was away for so long I mean even though it wasn't abroad Mm. I was filming nearly every day and just before that I'd been in Toronto doing Shazam for four or five months I mean I got backwards and forwards a couple of times but even so they got to come out though as well didn't they they did they did yeah but um yeah, I do. It's a I think I think there's a checklist isn't there of uh, I find I have a checklist of things to do with each job and one of them is location one is character one yeah. is director one is story one is pay yeah you know and yeah. those kind of five elements depending on how many of them are ticked often seem to make the choice for me but i have to say location has now become one of the biggest things but it has to be it gets to that point in your life where yeah we love what we do but it isn't the be all and end all. Yeah, thank God. There's, yeah, there's bigger things. Do you think? Do you think your attitude to the business changes, or do you think 
So getting older and realising that in your mind, or do we get work that enables us to be able to make that choice? I, th- I think a bit of both. Huh. I'd, I'd like to think a bit of both, but certainly if you're asking me, has my attitude changed? My attitude has changed right. dramatically. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think that's been facilitated with, by the work that I've been lucky enough to do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I feel like when I started out, I was so terrified into believing, which is not untrue, that it's incredibly difficult to, to have a career in yeah. this industry. So that's kind drama of dr- school. That's, that's drummed into you, yeah, though, Oh, isn't my it? God, yes. You leave drama school absolutely vibrating with fear mm. that you're never going to work. Mm. And even if you do work, you're never going to get another job. Yeah. And so for years and years, I just, I just felt, okay, keep working. That's the thing. Take the next job, the next job. I mean, unless it was something I really didn't want to do, just keep going, keep going. And that's changed. I think now I'm much more choosy. And if there is some downtime, I can accommodate it and it's fine. I don't panic about it. Um, Yeah, so I think mentally I've kind of changed, probably just getting older. And also, these days, I think the jobs I do tend to pay more than the ones I used to do. So I can pay the bills for longer. And also you can afford that time off then. Yeah, exactly. But I think I was talking to somebody the other day about the power of saying no to a job because I, I know a fair few people certainly when I first started out 20 years ago they would do exactly what you said got to keep working got to keep the train wheels going say yes say yes say yes yeah, yeah. and they ended up burning out and they ended up being really unhappy yeah and I, luckily touch wood personally I've only done not that this is about me, Mark Strong, you understand. <laughs> I'm going to somehow get it back to you if I can. <laughs> Very sneaky. Um, I've only been, I think I've only been unhappy on two jobs right. in 20 years, which is pretty that is good pretty going. Good. I, I, yeah, I've never really been unhappy on a job. I mean, time may just drag, mm. and that can be a bit depressing. I mean, on, on Shazam, as fantastic as the movie is... Mm. Making those kind of big superhero movies is incredibly tedious because pretty much my, my talking scenes, if you like, were out of the way in a few weeks. And then I had to spend about five weeks in a blue warehouse rather than green screen. It was blue screen. In a, in a, in a harness. In a harness, in midair, yeah. spinning, fighting, punching, looking mean. Do you know what I mean? And virtually no dialogue. Uh, and it was, it was really tough. And then I, I lost my cool a little bit. I didn't shout at anyone or anything, but no. I just suddenly realised I wasn't having a good time. Um, yeah, no, few no. and far between the jobs you don't have a good time on. Do you find it harder with something so specific like that when there is no dialogue? Because I always find if you're doing a big scene and you've got, like, one line in a, a four-page scene, that is tremendously hard work to yeah. keep it going. Yeah. When you, yeah. Because it's in your mind, isn't it? And yeah. Gotta, yeah. Uh, that was... Ice, I believe. Yeah. So I will cut all over me. (laughs) But that's what you get for turning the podcast about me. Did I say the wrong thing? (laughs) Um, Yeah. Also, funny. Conversely, Mm. I can honestly say I don't think I've ever regretted a job that I've turned down. No. You know, I've never said no to something and then see it go and be amazing and think, oh God, I wish I'd done that. It's funny, isn't it? In the moment when you're trying to make a decision about work, it's, it's literally the only thing you can see, like the sun in your front of your face. It obliterates every other thing. You think, should I, shouldn't I? Is it the right thing? Is it the wrong thing? Am I doing it for the right reasons? All of those things come up. And then if I turn something down, usually I never even think about it again. 
And I th- I've always thought retrospectively, why, why did I agonise so much over that? Was it really such a huge choice? Mm. But it's not, but we do tend... I think we do tend to over-question sometimes. Well... And... But I think if you go with your gut, first thing, that... Personally, I don't think that ever lies to you. That you can never no. fail with that, can you? If it's no. the first gut instinct about turning something down or even accepting something. Also in life, I think, if you are really concentrating on the decision you've got to make, once you make that decision, you can't retrospectively change that. You know, if I choose to do something, at the, in the moment that I make that choice, I'm mm. making the right choice because I've thought about it. Um... So do, with, you, with, do you regret things? Do you ever regret things? Are you a big regretter? Do you think about that? Not really. No. I don't know. I, in my, I feel like I'm moving forward all the times in life. I have a terrible memory because I don't really store things. I don't, I don't you know, I'm terrible for faces and names and also things that I did. Uh, and I think it's because I'm always moving forwards. I'm always looking ahead. I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of person who tries to avoid problems coming up and think how I can avoid those things rather than worry about what's gone. That's really positive, though. Is I that think. positive? I, well, I think so. It, it can be a burden, though, because you... I'm in quite, what way? Well, I'm quite, a control, I'm quite controlling in that way, that I need to know what we're doing. Like my wife, for example, whenever we get in the car, <laughs> she, um, she has a very cavalier attitude to time and directions in, in a car. Yeah. I mean, she's on time for every meeting because that's her job and she's brilliant at that. But we'll get in a car and I'm doing the driving and she knows where we're going. She'll be quite sparse with the information. Right. And I'm like, look, just tell me, like, in two roads' time, we're going to turn right. But she won't do that. She'll wait until we're nearly there and she'll go, oh, it's right here. You See, that, that would really annoy me. <laughs> yeah, and I've actually said, that's really difficult for me to cope with because I need to know in advance what's coming up and everything. Yeah. Makes no difference. Also running for the plane, unless we're literally running for a plane, because we've timed it brilliantly from home to the plane, she's not happy. I, I'll, I'd get there a day before. Oh, me too. You know? I mean, I've gone on holiday with my little boy recently. Right. I was so paranoid. You know when you're travelling alone with, with, with a child? It was, I was quite nervous about it. It was the first <laughs> time I'd ever done it. So what I did was booked a hotel near Gatwick Airport to get up at four o'clock oh, in the morning good. so I could get to the airport. And then, and then if I'm there an hour before we have to... I can relax. Yeah. My shoulders yeah. are down. I'm, I'm more or less already on holiday yeah. then. But if I'm running, oh, there's a big <sighs> the thermometer in me just sort of boils and boils. And well, she's, get... she's rewired differently. The, the victory for her is timing it perfectly. Is it? So that you leave at the last possible moment you can leave, everything happens, and then you literally get there, you walk through, you're through security, you walk in, the, the gate is called, you're there, the queue's going down, you're on the plane. If she can have that happen, and that's what she's aiming for, she's really, really happy. I mean, hats off to people like that. When does that that ever happen? It never happens, (laughs) but that fills me with fear. Yes, yeah. Because of failure. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure that's why we're together. Because (laughs) they say opposites attract. It's a nice balance. Do you you think you've always been like that, Mark? That that forward-thinking, always moving forward? I think so. And I don't know if that's... I mean, obviously, I'm never in anybody else's head, so I don't know mm. how other people think. But I, I meet people who have incredible memories and can remember everything that they've done in the past, you know, their, their memories as children and stuff. Like that. I don't really have any of those things. And I can only put it down to that, that I've always had to prepare. And I, I tell you, actually, where it might come from. Um, 
my my dad left when I was uh, young, mm. a baby, so he was never around. So my mum um, had to try and bring me up, and she was from Austria. So she was in London in the 60s, age 20, with a kid, and worked in the rag trade. We were right. up, I was born in Islington, we lived up there. So she worked in a factory by day and a bar at night mm. to make enough money to keep things um, ticking over. And the point came, I think, when I got to age sort of five, I was a bit of a handful. And she didn't know what to do. So, so friends of the family, who we're still friends with, uh, gave her the advice of uh, putting me into this state boarding school. They'd found somewhere down in Surrey, who's the, the remit of the school, which used to be an orphanage, right. was called in Victorian times the Asylum for Fatherless Children. And its sole remit was to provide schooling for disadvantaged kids from London who yeah. didn't have fathers. So we applied. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I fulfilled the criteria. So I went there at five. So from a very early age, I was very organised, getting stuff planned and prepared. You know, you get up in the morning, you'd make your own bed. You'd go down if it was your turn to lay the table for breakfast for everyone. You had to do that. So I see with my son now, who's just my younger boy, who's just started secondary school, getting everything together, you know, his, his kit, his sports kit and all of that, and getting, doing it on time and brushing his teeth and having everything ready, it's tricky for him because he's mm. a bit of a dreamer in a lovely way. But um, It's exactly like my son. Really? He, well, he always gets told off after he gets out of the showers that he, and he needs to get changed. And he's, he's got <laughs> dyspraxia, so he finds buttons and, and coordination things quite difficult. So right. he's not as quick off the mark as all the other kids. Blush is a bit of a dreamer and he loves a chat. Yeah. So when he's getting dry, he's supposed to be, you know... He's, How lovely, I, I know. Said, but just... And he gets quite angry about it. I said, well, don't... Just, just yeah. listen and just... Just try and do your best. But, yeah, I don't mind being that dreamer type. But that's very lovely, because what I was going to say is I'm conscious that I have to bite my tongue and not rush him along. Mm. Because um, I felt very guilty the other day. I did kind of go, come on, pal, you've got you to be quicker than this. And he, I could see him sort of start to get upset. I thought, oh, that's terrible. Um, and I don't want to visit my forward-looking control planning thing on, on him, because... He's his own guy. You know? Exactly. And his personality is growing all the time. Yeah. But at school, you see, I, so when it then came to secondary school, which was also a state boarding school, I mean, I don't know how many people have state boarding school history from 5 to 18. Um, but my mother moved abroad when I was 11, went to live in Germany because she could earn more money. She spoke German. England was having a three-day week, rubbish in the streets. There were power cuts. We, it looked like we were all going to the dogs, you know. And Germany was having an economic miracle. So she moved and mm. said, do you want to come with me? And I thought, well, I, why would I want to go to Germany? So I, I stayed on at the school that I was at, that I'd started as a day pupil and became a boarder. But it meant at the end of every term, all the other kids, you know, their parents would turn up, they just chuck everything in the boot of the car and drive off. I had to plan what I was going to take home on the plane because I was only allowed a certain amount of kilos, what I was going to leave behind, where I was going to leave it behind at school, was it going to be laundered so that when I got back, I could actually wear it, and all of that. So I had to sort of do a lot of pre-planning in my life as a young boy. A, a, a very young boy yeah. to be doing all that. I mean, that sounds like yeah. you're growing up much quicker than what you should have been, really. Yeah, maybe, maybe. How was it, just going back to when you were there at five years old, to start a boarding school... Already, I don't know how I would be able yeah. to handle that at five. Again, because I've got terrible memory. Yeah, I, I, I can't know. really remember. My mum has this photograph, though, of me looking a bit weepy yeah. on the day that she dropped me off there and left. She's got a massive sort of 60s beehive hairdo, and I'm in a little sort of blazer and shorts, and I'm, I look a bit um, 
little bit sad, you know, mm. so... But I don't remember that. And I have to say that whole school experience sounds pretty Dickensian, but actually wasn't. It was, it was totally fine. And I had a great time, because all the brothers and sisters I don't have were replaced by people that I was at school with. Yeah. So I kind of, I, I kind of grew up with, you know, learning from them or watching them. Were you quite confident as a child, Mark? Because, uh, I mean, if, you're, if you were making these friends and they were becoming sort of your brothers and sisters, was yeah. it, do you think that was an easy thing for you to do or a natural thing? Not particularly confident, I don't think. I was quite chunky when I was um, sort of 10, 11, 12. I think I felt a little like, you know, I wasn't one of the cool boys, one of the good boys, and, and, and I was sort of on the outside a little bit. Um, Partly, again, because I didn't have a normal family unit and I was watching them all and just felt a little bit of an outsider. I always felt, I think, at that age, if there, if there was a... I needed a rule book. Mm. Give me the book so that I can work out how I'm supposed to behave and what I'm supposed to be, and then I, I know what I'm doing. But I was learning, learning from... Uh, I was learning uh, from everybody about me. But then, in my mid-teens, I suddenly grew up and in and got really good at sport... So I was playing A-team rugby. I was captain of the basketball team, uh, swimming for, for, you know, Norfolk, uh, my county, and uh, at the time. And it all kind of got good. I think I, what I realised is I became visible, I suppose. Right. Boarding school works if you have a talent, if you're visible, if you're bright, if, you, if you're musical, if you're whatever. If you're invisible at boarding school, I think it'd be really tough. So I wasn't confident, but then I, I think I gained some confidence through sport how were academic studies average is the best way i can describe it right i was there a passion for it or no not really not really certain you know i know that there were certain times when i got fired up to write a good essay or became interested in something in science or whatever but generally i was i was coasting and doing the best that i could i think i had a natural intelligence that meant that when it came to a levels i was okay o levels i got a's and b's but then by the time it got to a levels i sort of i'd sort of lost the will really i was much more interested in being a teenager and having a laugh, and, yeah, in a good time. I formed a punk band, and did, you know, yeah. that was the advent of all of that. Yeah. You know? When did when did music come into your life as a teenager? Uh, yeah, seventy six, seventy seven. I used to listen to John Peel. I had a I had a small transistor radio that when lights out happened, I'd, I used to switch it on really low and I used to listen to it on my pillow, and I'd listen to John Peel and. Uh, you know, you'd have an hour, a radio show lasted a couple of hours. Yeah. Radio One. I remember, distinctly remember the night he played um, Susie and the Banshees' first album, Uninterrupted. He just literally went, here it is, I'm not going to say anything. And he played the whole first side, turned it over, played the whole of the second side. Wow. So, and also sounds at the time, I think either Sounds or Enemy had a, one uh, edition came out and one full page said, here's three chords and they'd, they'd drawn three chords on a sort of guitar fret. Now go out and form a band. And we literally did that. I went, OK, right, we're going into Norwich. You're going to buy a snare drum and a hi-hat. You're going to get a lead guitar. I bought a bass, an old second-hand bass. And, um, and I was able to get hold of the, the, the equipment at school, the amp and the speakers. And we'd just go and plug it in, in one of the classrooms and go and make a noise. And we actually made, cut a little tape. Did you? Uh, God knows where that is. <laughs> and, uh, and played a gig in our local village to, I think there were more people on stage than there were in the audience, but it was fantastic fun. So it all could have gone very differently. Your career. Yeah. I don't think music's lost a great deal, <laughs> you know, uh, that that didn't continue for me. 
But it did mean that I, I went, not off the rails, but I, I got less interested in academics. So my A-levels weren't great. Uh, I got an A in German, obviously, but it was cheating there as I spoke it. Um, and that's why I then went to Munich University to do law, which well, sounds um, great. Was your, was your mum in Munich at that yeah. time? Yeah. She'd moved to Munich. So why law? Was that something you were looking to do? I think I was at a school where, well, they still are now, they were very keen to have guys go on to Oxford and Cambridge and mm. get really good university places. And unfortunately, my A-level results didn't really fit with any of those kind of high-end universities. But I could hear enormous brownie points by being the first boy in the school ever to gain entrance to Munich University to go and do law. So it got them off my back. Yeah. They went, marvellous, my lord, Munich, <laughs> marvellous, brilliant. And then they could all go and say, we were one boy, he's off to Munich to do law. You know, so, um, yeah, but I got there and then realised it really, it was it wasn't too difficult for me. And, uh, yeah, German, constitu- I mean, in, it was all in German and it was, you know, political, constitutional kind of language that I didn't have. Yeah. So um, the guys who were in the, the next building who were doing acting uh, workshops and things were having way more fun than I was, and that's how I got into... Is it? Was, interested was, in acting. Did, did the acting ever come prior to this? No. No? No. It was weirdly... I mean, I'd done a play at school, but they hadn't really fired me up in any way. It was just... I just opened that door and, you know, said to uh, a teacher back at school, listen, I want to come back to the UK... Maybe I should do German, obviously, degree, but I'm really interested in the idea of doing drama and, and theatre. And English. anyway, I applied for a couple of German courses on my Ucker form. I don't know if it's still the same. Yeah. And a couple of um, English and drama courses. And the English and drama uh, uh, interview was the first one I had, and they gave me a place. Wow. So I went, and it was there where they had a studio theatre, and you could do staging and, you know, basically study theatre back from the... Greek and Romans up to the present day that I really that was the first time I really got the bug other than the music I suppose but yeah. I really got the bug for something so that started to put a fire in your belly there yeah yeah and how long was that how long were you there for that was at uh, Royal Holloway College the University of London it was right. an English and drama degree and it was uh, three years was it and yeah because I say they had their own studio theatre you could put plays on you could do the lighting you could do the sound so you were starting to learn about all everything. aspects of the, the theatre. And the academic side of things. So, you know, Oscar Wilde and, mm. you know, uh, Plautus and Terence and all the Greeks and, you know, everything up to the present day. Uh, so that, that's, that became invaluable when I, when I then started getting into the business. And did you think at that point while you were at Holloway that this was going to be a viable career? No. I... There were a lot of people there, obviously, and the mantra was, of course, I should be at drama school. So I think a lot of people who were into acting and wanted to go to drama school, their parents said, no, no, get a degree. Yeah. So that's the first time I went, drama school? What's drama school? Mm. Found out about that. And then after Holloway, I realised I needed more than just, you know, the kind of academic experience that I'd had. Mm. And I went to the Bristol Old Vic for two years. How did you find Bristol? Amazing. Loved it. Mm. From the first day, absolutely loved it. I always remember Chris Dennis, the principal there, on the, f- the day that we all gathered, he said, listen, if there's anything else that you have any interest in in this life, if there's anything else that you think you can do, I strongly suspect you leave right now. Yeah. And uh, that really struck me 
And I thought, obviously, nobody left, and he didn't really mean it, but he was making it very clear. You need to have this drive and this love of it. And I did. But I think he's right. I yeah. mean, so many people go, you know, did you have a plan B? Well, well, no. If I had a plan B, then I should probably have done that. Yeah, no, there was no plan B for me no. either. And it's fascinating today how many young people uh, I meet who want to get into the business, you know, whether it's directing or making films or acting and all of that. Quite a lot. Back then, not so many. Because I think we were encouraged to do law or, you know, if you could learn a trade or something mm. like that, something palpable. The idea of going off being an actor was so nebulous that uh, I, was, I was advised against it. Whereas now I think times are so tricky that actually choosing a job that doesn't have any particular security about it but at least affords you joy is not such a crazy decision. Well, I don't think it is. Now, nowadays, I think it's changed a lot. But I think, again, what we were talking about at the beginning, about certain things being drilled into us. Yeah. Certain things were drilled into us also back then where, no, you can do that, but you have to get this first just in case. You need your fallback. Yeah. Whereas now I don't think you do. Because yeah. people see people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds going, oh, well, I... I saw that person on the telly, I saw that person in a film, I saw that person on stage, yeah. and I know that they're from my background, so maybe if they can do it, then I, I I've, might have a small chance yeah. of dipping my toe in. So it's a, but I suppose it's, there's a possibility now, yeah. whereas then I, d I don't know if there was as much, certainly from where I was from. It was, yeah, it was kind of considered an eccentric choice because mm. there was no stability, whereas, I, as I say, now there, there seems to be relatively little stability in, in our in, in the world, things, yeah. So it doesn't seem such a a strange and also choice to make. Sometimes I think that's other people's fear of oh, how could you possibly do that? I, I, well, I need that stability in my life, so you you yeah, yeah. couldn't even do that. Yeah, and also remember, uh, the generation before us were sort of post-war, and it wasn't about indulgence; it mm. was about survival. I mean, even though it was the sixties and everything, you still had to kind of have a sense of. Of, of ethic, you know, work ethic about you. The idea that you choose a, a creative course was was sort of considered um, odd. Yeah. Whereas now, not so much. No. And in fact, somebody was saying the other day that, that at a school lecture we went to recently, um, being able to to uh, have ideas and be creative were the sort of top two uh, recommendations for for students when they get out into the real world. Having ideas, being creative. That's now of paramount importance. It, it kind of wasn't when I left school. Mm. Asking mm. questions. Always mm. ask the questions. Always encourage my little boy, ask ask a question. Yeah. Don't worry if it's not right. If it's Because yeah. then you'll know. Because yeah. you fail, you get down, and you get back up. And that's yeah. the only way that, that we learn. It's fascinating you should say that, asking questions. I've got this little theory, um, and I don't know if it's true or not, but... When we left school or mm. university, we had to ask questions. If you wanted to find out about something, you had to go find somebody who knew about it. You didn't have the computer stroke phone in your hand. No. And it seems to me a lot of confidence these days in young people that worries me is born of the fact that they don't need anybody. They don't need anybody to tell them where to go. They've got Google Maps. They don't need to work out how to get into a business. They just... Google it, you know. You can find out anything you need to know. You can also validate yourself by taking pictures and posting it and have instant friends. Mm. It's really dangerous and terrifying. 
mind. Yeah. Probably not to them. They're growing up with it and they can deal with it and they'll all be fine. But I feel like it's, it's eliminated a lot of the humility, which I miss humility, you mm. know, that people had to have in order to kind of get on in the world. You had to go and seek stuff out. Now you don't need anybody particularly. And grace, humility and grace. Yeah, yeah. But you say then... Make, God, it makes me sound old, doesn't it? I no, I don't like, think it does make you sound old because I mm. kind of agree with you. Mm. And I'm certainly not old. I like to think I am old. <laughs> nice. Um, but, um, you know, you say maybe they can deal with it. Sometimes I don't think they can because uh-huh. I hear stories. And I, I, the only reason I'm on social media is basically for work and for this podcast to, to help in a business kind of way, you know. Yeah. So, you know, my producer knows more about the social media aspect of it than I do. But I hear awful stories about validation um, that these young people have and they need. And I, I, I don't know where to go with it or what the, the answers are, but I do find it worrying that you really? post a, a photo of where you are and you're constantly looking, oh, has he got this many likes? Is yeah. he, that's going to drive people potty. Well, you'd imagine so, wouldn't you? Well, I don't think it's very helpful for your upstairs. And you're no. so these young people are growing up. They don't even know, and I don't mean this in a patronising way because no. I was the same. We're all the same. We don't know who we are. We're learning as we grow up because we're yeah. growing into ourselves. Yeah, and every generation worries about the next generation. I mean, when I was into punk and doing that, I remember people standing, sort of doing candlelight vigils outside Sex Pistols concerts because they thought we were all going to hell. Oh, yeah. And now it just seems like a lot of good-natured mucking about when you look at it. But at the time, our parents thought it was dangerous and evil and vile. Um, So obviously now my generation looks at the kids and thinks that these pernicious phone-stroke computers Mm. aren't going to help. But, you know, maybe as they're growing up with it, they're used to it, and I'm um, not. And we're not, yeah. Well, yeah. maybe. Can I ask you a slightly personal question, Mark? Yeah, sure. Um, when you were growing up, did you ever... Well, I suppose maybe you didn't, but I'm, I don't want to ask the question <laughs> for you. Did you ever miss a, the father figure in your life, or certainly a male figure? Um, no, because I didn't really know what that was. Yeah. You know, I think if it's very difficult for kids whose parents break up when they're you know, aware of their parents as a unit. You know, I suppose from three onwards, it'd be tricky. And then if you, they say, you know, 11 to 15, teenage years is the worst time because, you know, they're aware of the presence of both parents. But I, I, I just grew up with my mum, that was mm. it. And of course, of course, we were in a foreign um, country, so all her family were abroad. So mm. there was just literally me and her. Uh, and that's what I was used to. And in a way... I've thought about it since, it was probably kind of liberating because I didn't have anybody telling me what to do. I didn't have anybody I needed to emulate. Yeah. I didn't have anybody that I felt inadequate because of, because they'd achieved something. Um, No brothers and sisters as well, so nobody to compete with. Mm. I didn't miss all of that, actually, the the, the so-called normal family life. I mean, my missus comes from a, a, a normal family and it's great, you know, they all love each other and, and, and argue with each other in, in equal measure. Um, and it's fascinating watching the dynamic. But there are, there are, there are downsides to close family as well. Yeah, you know, exactly. as well as, uh, but I, I, I think I thrived, actually, because it meant I had to work things out for myself. And I suppose, as you say, you can't miss what you didn't have no, or you didn't quite. know, can you? No. And do you think 
because of not having that, you had a, a closer relationship with your mum? Yeah, I did. Uh, very close to my mum. But boarding school got in the way of that a little bit. You know, being sent away meant... They say there's a, there's a great book by Steve Bidolf, I think, called Raising Boys. I don't know if you've read it. No. In it, it posits the theory that boys kind of need their mum for the first six years, their dad for the next six years, and then something or someone else for the subsequent six years. Right. And that is, I think, absolutely valid. So up until the age of five, six, you know, my mum was around and I was with her. Then school really took the paternal, you know, all those... those teachers, those male teachers who were in loco parentis, it's called. Mm. They, they were kind of the father surrogate. Um, and then, you know, I got to sort of 12 and I wanted something other than, than, than my parents or parent. And so, especially with her moving abroad at 11, yeah. it meant we didn't... I, I probably was at school more than I was at home. Mm. And even when I was at home, she still had to work and earn yeah. money. So she wasn't around all the time. So we had a very fractured uh, relationship through through me growing up. Was it one of those relationships where, so when you were at the boarding school and then you were going back to go and see your mum, would you pick up kind of where you left off or would there be a, a time where you had to crank the relationship back up again? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Where you would pick up exactly where you were or... It would... No, it went. It was stages. Right. So I'd be with her over a summer, yeah. then go back to school. By the time I got back at Christmas, she might have a new boyfriend. Right. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. then, or have moved. Yeah. And in fact, she had boyfriends and moved in between times. She moved around all the time, my mum. Did mom. she? Yeah. But what, because of work? She couldn't ever settle, I don't think, and was always just looking for something. So, no, it was more stages. So right. I'd get there that summer, we'd have that sort of relationship. And then the Christmas would be slightly different. We'd be somewhere else, maybe with a new guy in her life or whatever. Then I'd go back to school. By the next summer, we would, something else would be taken. She'd got a new job or something. Did that become part of the norm? So you, you were expecting to, her to be moving? And... It did, it did. And then I got to sort of 14, 15, and I thought, there's no point in me going back there because I don't know anyone in Germany. And, you know, mum seems settled in her life. Yeah. And I'd sort of uh, spend uh, holidays with friends' uh, uh, parents. I'd, I'd go to their families and like, not go home for Easter one yeah. year. Or I'd go and stay with mates in a squat in Norwich. You know, right. we were in a punk band for a couple of months one summer instead of going home. So just jump in again. We move around the time frame on the podcast all the time. It's okay. Um, but during that two-year period in Bristol... Yeah. Was that quite an intense two years? Yeah. Was, was there any point during that two years where you thought, even though you went in with a very positive attitude, was there any times where it kind of broke you or made you think twice about being, becoming an actor? No, as a career? Never, never. Never. The opposite. Really? Literally the opposite. I was a heat-seeking ballistic missile for the business. Do you know what I mean? I, I wanted in. Yeah. And... Not because I wanted fame and fortune, genuinely. Mm. I actually loved the process of rehearsals, being in a play, being on stage. I love the combination of sort of practical work that you have to do in order to function on stage and the mental discipline required mm. to be on stage and also doing stuff in front of an audience. I mean, I'm, I'm relatively shy, I think, in my everyday life. I don't go out and seek attention. But there was something about playing to an audience that I 
I don't know why. I just got it. And it's, it's the thing that I still love more than anything. And so at drama school, I worked really, really hard. You know, I, I, it, almost too hard. I, so, I sort of thought, you know, if I really, really, you know, uh, uh, work as hard as I possibly can, then it's going to guarantee me something. Mm. And, of course, it doesn't. The only thing you actually earn at drama school is your fight certificate. Did you do one of those? <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah. Oh, my God, I prepared that for, like, <laughs> nine months because it's a validation. Yeah. You get a piece of paper that says you've done your fight and, and you, you know, because obviously you don't get any kind of validation as, as an actor. It's only the, the job that gives you that if you get one or are lucky enough to get one. No, I never swerved from the course. And then I even remember being offered my very first job, a guy called John Ginman, who used to run the, the Swan Theatre in Worcester, mm. had come to see our final year show. I played Barone in Love's Labour's Lost. Right. And he offered me a job, nine months, get my equity card, go to Worcester. And I remember saying to a couple of the guys, and they were like, where? Worcester? Why do you want to go to Worcester for nine months? And they were hanging on for, maybe they could get something in London, maybe they could get a small TV part. And they had aspirations that were more I suppose about the business I just wanted to do it you just wanted to work and he even he said to me when he offered me the job he said listen you might get other offers and stuff but uh, and, and I'm, I'm happy to wait to see what you get you know and I was like no 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 on that phone call I went no I'm coming I want it yeah I'm in I'm in and you so, took it yeah yeah and I left uh, and went st uh, straight up to Worcester and did a nine-month season of nine plays in nine months so it was monthly rep we'd rehearse during the day yeah and then perform the previous play if you like in the evening and I got to play Jack Worthing in The Importance of Being Earnest. I got to do uh, you know, Tony Harrison's The Passion. Right. Uh, I got to be in a, in a uh, uh, pantomime. And then uh, a new play and Young Bellerin, The Man of Mode. My very first professional job was playing the teacher in Our Day Out. Was it? Willie Russell play, which yeah. is a play about teachers taking a bunch of kids to a zoo and they say don't work with children and animals and it was the very first job i ever did it was all children and animals um not exotic zoo animals because you couldn't really get those in worcester but we had goat and a couple of geese and perfect stuff like that but you see if you'd have waited around like the others going oh maybe a bit of the rsc maybe a bit in london there's no way you'd have been able to play that sort of uh no. catalogue of parts there so that first nine months was another nine months of yeah. learning. Yeah, it was gold dust. And then from there, I think it finished in the sort of spring. There was nothing. So for a summer, I think I did telesales to, to make ends meet mm. and thought I'd never work again. And then, and then John Jimman went to take over the, the contact theatre in Manchester from the guy who was running it, who was on a sabbatical. And he invited me back to come and do uh, Macbeth and translations. And uh, so I, I, you know... I said to all the guys in the telesales office, right, because I, I told them all summer I'm an actor, and they were like, yeah, right, Go of course you are. And the day that I said to them, okay, I've got a job, I'm off, was a, was a wonderful one, and then managed to keep it going uh, with, with uh, the contact theatre in Manchester. And then the RSC came calling, and I, I got players cast there, you know, holding spears and being various monks. It's letters. so interesting about, you know, talking about before about saying yes and saying no. And you said yes to him and everybody else was going, Worcester, why do you want to go Worcester? Mm. And then we were talking about regrets before. You don't need any regrets. Imagine if you hadn't have taken that. Yeah. Then he wouldn't have taken Everything happens for a reason, so it is about who you work with. Yeah. I think it's about, you know, it sounds called psychology, but it's about positivity and it's about... You know, just, just, you know, if you put the good vibes out there and you do the work and you learn stuff, even things that may not be glamorous, mm -hmm. and you think they're glamorous enough for you, 
it will all pay off, you know. Yeah. And I feel like it did. I think all that work that I put in, and and it wasn't hard. I loved Worcester and I loved contact and I loved being at the RSC, you know, suddenly standing side, side stage and watching people like, you know, Mark Rylance and Ray Fiennes and Penny Downey and all the older actors. And uh, and then and then from that I got, uh, I went over to the National and did um, Lear and Richard III. You know, Richard Eyre was directing Richard III, Deborah Warner was directing Lear, and it was one company doing both plays. Wow. And we went on a world tour. Oh. We went all over Europe and Eastern Europe because the wall had just come down, and Tokyo, and Cairo, uh, which is exactly what you want in your mid 20s. Oh, this, unbelievable. You know, and McKellen, it was McKellen was playing Richard III, Brian Cox was Lear, and uh, you used to stand side stage and watch them. And more importantly than that, even than just watching them perform, was seeing how they were off stage. Because when you're on tour with people for that length of time, and it was, you know, a year, I think. Uh, and you become a family. Yeah, but you watch them in life. Mm. And I think the humility and the confidence, the co- that sort of strange combination that they all seem to have was something that I learned from. Um, but you never stop learning? No, of course. Do you, ever, do you think that now? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, I don't know what it feels like for you, but every new job, I feel like I've forgotten everything. Yeah. You know, you have yeah. to start from square one again. Well, it is first day. It's always first day of school. Sure. New but people, new forging, words, new character. Forging relationships <laughs> quickly, sounding people out, making sure you're, you're as sound as you can possibly be yeah. and open. Yeah. I always think being open is so important. Yeah, I agree. And I have to say often when I've done press, I've had actors go, oh, you've got to be careful of journalists. You see, journalists, they'll, uh, you know, they'll get in there and they'll, they'll, you won't be happy. And, and I've found the opposite to be true, actually. The more open you are, the more people realise that you're not, not just journalists, but in life, mm. that you have no ulterior motive or side. Yeah. Then the more people relate to that. Yeah. Because everybody can relate to that. You and always then, can relate to someone who's kind and warm and open. And then they relax as sure. well. Because, you, you know, you do You're do not those... competing and it's not a game. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. People are... Worried about if there's a game. There's no. There's no. If there's no side, then they're not going to have a side. Sure. So everybody can relax. Sure. You have to have a bit of steel, though, just in case someone does take advantage of that, and that can sometimes happen. That you are warm and open, and somebody thinks therefore you're weak. Well, you're never weak. confuse kindness for weakness. No, exactly. That's the thing. <laughs> so if you can turn it on, and that's all right. That's yeah. the that's the autobiography. <laughs> that, that is the autobiography. <laughs> Do you know during those ten months in telesales when you were thinking? Well, that's it. Yeah. Was your spirit crushed or was it quite a roller coaster? Or were you I've still... Got, have we got time for a great story? We've got time for everything, Mark Strong. Okay, so it wasn't 10 months. It was a summer. It was sort of April through to September. Mm-hmm. That, that was the thing. It was a highly dodgy outfit that I didn't really realise until later. These guys pretended they had... Um, magazines that they were advertising in and that these these magazines were being sent to all the captains of, of industry throughout Europe. Yeah. So the idea was that you rang various people cold and offered them advertising space in these magazines. And people have an advertising budget for their company. So they would, you know, if you were persuasive enough or they needed you enough or they would put their advertising in the magazine. I only subsequently, when I left, found out they only print as many magazines as there are advertisers. No. So everyone who's advertised in it gets a really glossy magazine with their ad in, but yeah. it's not actually going to anyone. It was a total con. And it's only afterwards that I realised all the people in that room kind of knew that. So they were all on some level con artists. And that was compounded just before I left by this one guy who turned up. I'd been there 
few months. Yeah. All I remember is he was called Howard. And he came in and he, had a, he was in there one morning when I got in. He was a couple of desks away from me. And he said, hello, uh, you know, I'm new. I was like, hello, Howard. And we got to know each other. We became quite friendly. Mm. In fact, we'd go out for lunch together at Simpsons on the, on the Strand, you right. know, in our suits, pretending we were somehow, you know, big <laughs> businessmen or what the hell. And he would weave stories. He'd say, while we were there, he'd say, oh, that guy over there, see that guy? He's a, he's a judge. He presided over my divorce. Uh, and another time he told me that he had some sort of problem with his, uh, with his spleen or something, you know, some medical thing that he'd had. And he was telling me all these stories. We became quite close. Mm. And then one day... Uh, he invited us all to go to for a weekend down to a boat that he was going to rent down in uh, Southampton. I couldn't make it that weekend. I think I was doing something. Um, and the guys all went off. And the next week when I came in, Howard wasn't there. And they all turned up. And apparently Howard hadn't turned up at the boat. They'd all gone down there with their bags ready for a weekend on a boat. He just vanished. Didn't turn up. Couldn't get him hold of him or anything like that. And it turns out the method for earning money in, these, um, uh, uh, in this office was that you had to get somebody to agree to advertise. And when they did, they had to send a particular wording by telex to the office. That was your commission. That was your proof that you told advertising. But, of course, the mag didn't come out for a while. So you tried to collect as much commission from various people as you could. And at the end of the week, all those little chitties would pay you money. Yeah. They gave you – you got it in cash. Okay. Um, so what Howard had been doing, he'd been, every time I got a sale, he'd rented a telex office in Birmingham. He would send a bogus telex to the firm from some company, probably a real company, knowing that they wouldn't actually check up on these telex until it came time to get payment, which was in like six weeks' time. So he basically came in, he did six weeks of bullshitting everybody, did a couple of side deals as well, got money off people for faxes that he was going to give them and stuff like that, and then just... Vanished. vanished and when they told the police they were like yeah yeah we know that guy he's a confidence trickster no yeah. yeah and i couldn't believe it so in a way even in my downtime when i wasn't acting i was being given i was being given the best acting lesson yeah by this guy because i thought he didn't have to go for lunch with me he didn't have to say all this stuff about the judge and the display and then i realized it's all it's all stuff designed for you not to see him yeah he's got stories so when they said to me what do you know about him all I could remember were these stories he told me. I knew nothing about him, him, where he lived, how he got to work, anything. Proper smoke and mirrors. Amazing, <laughs> amazing, yeah. Well, it's all been theatre, theatre, theatre mm. up to now. Mm-hmm. When I was thinking about you and think, actually thinking about me for once <laughs> and, <laughs> and my past and what were inspiring me and what I think a certain landmark television. When you say landmark television, there's not loads, is there, throughout history, I think. I mean, there's a, there's, a, there's a big few. But one for me was our friends in the North. Right. And when I think about that, I can't put it aside any other series. Were you really. acting by then? No, I was, I was uh, just watching loads of telly and being a kid. Yeah? I was a teenager. Right. So were you aware of it as a phenomenon or were you actually into the show? I was actually into it. And it was only after that I went, oh, this is, this is huge. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing like this. And the, the time frame of the story. Yeah. And I'd never seen anything like it. No. 
I, we, we didn't know what we'd let ourselves in for. I mean, well, I certainly didn't. That's what I was wanting to know about. Yeah, no, me and Danny Craig used to walk down the street together in Newcastle and go, do you think this is going to be any good? You know, because for us it was just another job. We had no concept that Michael Jackson at BBC Two had committed, I think, 80% of the drama budget to that one show, which was unheard of. It was a massive gamble. Yeah. And it was 11 hours of television yeah. spanning the 60s through to the 90s. Um. For me, I'd been at the National. It was just like doing another play. It was a, it was a year's filming, and I got a to, year. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And I got to age. It seemed to be about a year. Maybe that's maybe in nine months or something. But a long period of time, mm. long enough that it felt to me like a play in front of a camera. Particularly as I was, you know, wearing wigs and then losing my hair as I well, got yeah, older. I mean, it was like look a, at everybody's growing up. Yeah, and growing older. And yeah, relationships yeah. are fractured. I mean, it was just. It was great, actually. It was really, uh, yeah. So, so making the transition from theatre to TV, which I did with that show, was an easy one because I'd been, I'd been dressing up in the theatre, mm. pretending to be ages that I wasn't. So it was just doing the same as I'd been doing in the theatre but on, in front of a camera. So it's interesting that you were walking down the street and going, yeah, yeah. I, not sh- do you think? We I didn't know, know what it was. But sometimes you can trick yourself over if, you're, if you've got a great script and you've got a great cast, great director, you're going, I think this is going to be pretty yeah. good. Yeah. And then... It's it, not. It's not. <laughs> you know, you, as you know, you, you never know. And actually, often the opposite is true. When you're all feeling confident on set, I find that a little dangerous. I find that really you worrying. Know, yeah. That's when it's going to be ordinary. Yeah. Uh, or if you're all laughing at each other a lot on set, it's not going to be as funny as you think no, it is. No. Um, but it's that self-congratulatory thing. I have a real problem <clears throat> if I'm in a scene with somebody and at the end they go, right, we've got it, we've got it, we've done that, oh, we've <laughs> smashed, we've, yes, come on. Yeah. No, 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 I no, no. Maybe, yeah. No. Maybe it's not quite as good as what you think. Maybe just reserve yourself a little bit yeah. and think, mm, hopefully it's good, but I don't know. Maybe we could have done it. Well, you do, there's, there's so many other layers that have got to happen there's before always, the thing comes to, to the yeah, screen. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe over that bit they put a bit of crashing music and you're not you even haven't, Again, you have no control. You no. can only look after what you do and do that to the best of your ability. Absolutely. And everybody else has, everybody else has their own little jobs. Yeah. Don't be, don't be nicking their job. Mm. You focus on yours. And that's why it's such a, an inexact science making film or TV mm. because there's, there's all of those levels have to, or even theatre, because everything has to work for it to succeed. Do you find you have more a sense of control in theatre? Totally, because it's you on stage. Mm. The director has to sit out there fretting while you're running the show. And having exec produced on Temple, it's been a real revelation because it makes me realise how much goes on behind the scenes, how much music can change a scene, how much editing can change a scene. You know, the scene that you were playing that related to a previous scene that you'd worked your socks off on may not even be in the show. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of manipulation goes on after the fact, which is great, actually. It makes me worry less about how consistent I'm being over the course of a show. I mean, obviously, you have to draw your graph of your in inverted commas, a journey mm. uh, and play the scenes along the lines of that graph as they come up over the schedule. But, you know, scenes may just disappear and the whole, your whole plan might 
might not work. I mean, Stockholm I did just recently. Um, fantastic little film um, with a director called Robert Boudreau. I went to uh, Canada, to, to Hamilton, right. to shoot it. Six weeks, story about Stockholm Syndrome, about two uh, robbers who, who take hostages in a bank and then the people, the bank, the hostages fall in love with them. And that basically gave birth to Stockholm Syndrome. Right. Uh, me, Ethan Hawke, with the two bank robbers. Numi Rapace is one of the, um, the people that we're bursting in on. And it was a fantastic sort of dog day afternoon mm. kind of reimagining of that event. Mm. Crazy, you know, uh, uh, there was a car in it that looked like the car that Steve McQueen had in Bullet. Right. And, uh, Ethan had a massive wig and a cowboy hat. It was, it was a fantastic sort of noisy, brave reimagining of all of that. So I did it, and it was great. I had a, fantastic, a couple of fantastic scenes in it. Anyway, when I then saw the film, to cut a long story short, it was okay, and two of my best scenes that I really liked had gone. Mm-hmm. And also I think they decided in the edit, well, let's forget the dog day afternoon craziness and let's make it more of a love story. So they changed the name of it from Stockholm to The Captor right. and the picture of Ethan and Numi cuddling each other on the, uh, on the front of the DVD and then put a bit of cheesy music over it, and it became much more about the love story mm. than it was about the, the craziness of the bank robbery, which is fine. And obviously, greater minds than I had decided that that's how it should be. But it was really... I found it a little disappointing. Interestingly, you saying that, would directing be something that you would want to get into at any point? And I'm, and I'm thinking, well, have you not done that before? Now? I've never done it, no. And I don't know. Why? Um, it seems quite daunting. I don't look at that and think, yeah, I can do that. I look at it and think, how can you do that really, really well when I don't know enough? Um, maybe I'll get there. Mm. And interestingly, exec producing on, on Temple meant, funnily enough, I, there is a breadth of knowledge that I have over the last 30 years that can be useful. Yeah. Um, but I don't really know about lenses and technical stuff, and I would want to know about all that stuff a little more, although they do say that the cameraman and the DOP takes care of all that stuff. But um, I don't know. No, I haven't done it yet. I'm still enjoying acting. I'm enjoying, you know, a script landing on the mat, and you see a part, and you think, yeah, I can do something with that. Mm. I'm I'm still having fun with that. That's amazing that you're still having fun. I think that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm about to go off and do... um, Cruella, uh, Disney are, are doing the live version of all of their things. Mm. Anyway, they've got an origin story of Cruella with Emma Stone playing Cruella and Emma Watson playing the Baroness. Right. And it's being directed by Craig Gillespie, who did a fantastic film called I, Tonya. I love that, Tonya. Yeah, Robbie. that was brilliant. So he's doing a kind of punky reimagining of this um, origin story of Cruella de Vil. And uh, I'm going to go along and have a bit of fun. I'm playing a sidekick of... of uh, Emma Thompson. It's not a huge part, but I get to be a sidekick who you think is uh, highly dodgy, and there's some fun to be had with it, and um, that's why I've signed up. So, um, but if yeah. it's not fun to be had, then why why are we doing this? Well, no. I mean, the truth is, I I, I do. I'm never my own. I, I'm what's the expression? I'm my own worst enemy. Sometimes, you know. In what way? Well, I find I get involved with the sort of jobs that when you open the first page, it says night, exterior, trenches, rain, mud. It doesn't say Caribbean, you know, or, or Bahamas, or whatever, although, you know, sunshine and 
uh, I do get involved with the the tricky ones that yeah. have like endless night shoots and stuff. Um, but they're actually the interesting ones. But they I still are. have fun doing that. Exactly, a different type of fun. Yeah. Do you ever get to? A, do you, I mean, do you get to a point? Say, if you haven't been on stage for a couple of years, do you get a bit twitchy? Yeah. And you feel the need to get back on? Yeah. Just recently, I mean, I the last play I think I did a long time was was um, before the recent ones was. Uh, Sam Mendes' last two shows at the Donmar. He, he did um, Uncle Vanya and Twelfth Night mm. with the same company. And Simon Russell Beale and um, uh, Emily Watson, uh, Helen McCrory, you know, really good cast. Mm. And uh, that was it. That was me done. And then I got into film. And then A View from the Bridge came along. And uh, I thought I had been out for a few years, apparently 12 years I hadn't done a play for. And I'd always, that yeah, and I'd always said to myself that I would do a play a year or every couple of years. But 12 years had gone by and I'd just, um, I'd just not done a play. And uh, A View From The Bridge was, was dipping my toe back in the water and I loved it so much. I had such a great time. And I felt like I'd learned a lot of stuff in front of a camera that was useful on stage. Right. Um, and the thing was a big success and we did really well. So straight away I did a thing called um, The Red Barn. Uh, with Robert Icke and mm. the National, because I wanted to get back up there. And I'm going to do something next autumn that's already on the cards, probably, well, definitely with Robert. Uh, but Brilliant. I can't say what it is yet, because they're, right. they're still casting. Tell me after when we've stopped Yeah, recording. yeah, I can. But it means I am going to try and... Every couple of years, I want to get back on stage, because I do think that's the lifeblood of it all, you know, playing to a live audience your own rhythms mm. and how you can be either funny or tragic has no sounding board unless you have an audience. Because obviously, as we've said, you do that stuff on camera, somebody else takes it away and decides what rhythms they're going to mm. choose. Mm. So it's really your only way of working out how to perform. And especially for you with your career and your past, that's where it all started. That's where the love started. Yeah. So it's quite right that you should revisit that. I never even thought of doing TV or film, to be honest with you. I mean, when I... When I started, and I, was, I, I did that Worcester, Manchester, RSC national thing, mm. then I went to the Royal Court and, you know, the Almeida, and, and I was just going to do theatre. Telly was just something that, you know, my agent one day turned around and went, look, do you want to do this? So, so it kind of became a bit of an accident, falling into it, It really. accidentally happened, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and our friends was the break, I suppose. And then, and then I got into movies. Well, we should... I'd get my ass kicked probably oh. if we didn't end this by talking about television and talking about one specific television program, right. which would be Temple. Yes. So I know you've been doing manageable press for this. Yes. And I'm not press, as we know. No. I don't talk about things like this no, on no, the no. podcast. I talk about... This isn't press. This no, is fun. This is a nice conversation. <laughs> um, but imagine, right, that... I didn't know anything about the Sky One television show Temple. Yeah. I certainly hadn't read the scripts, and I definitely wasn't in it. Right. How would you describe the show to me, Mark? It is an adaptation, not a remake, mm-hmm. and I'm at pains to say that, of a Norwegian show called Valkyrian. And the reason that I think we need to know that it's an adaptation is because of the work that Marco Rowe, an amazing playwright and a screenplay writer mm. put in by writing all eight episodes. It's completely authored, our version, mm. by him. And uh, 
he took the original characters from the Norwegian show and some of the premise of the narrative and created his own thing. And essentially what he came up with was um, a surgeon who, in trying to help his dying wife, save his dying wife, gets into an unholy alliance with a character called Lee, played by Danny Mays, who has the keys to the, the uh, uh, tunnels underneath Temple Tube Station. And that's essentially the sort of initial framework, an odd couple relationship, mm. allowing Daniel to work below ground uh, and do uh, surgery on people for money to help Lee in his desire to become a prepper. Yeah. Then what happens is you get to meet a researcher who used to work with Daniel, that's my character's ex-wife. You get to meet a bank robber who is down there hiding out. You get to meet the bank robber's nemesis or nemesi. I don't know what the plural of nemesis is. Let's go with nemesi. Uh, two people, uh, one of them not very far from where I'm sitting right now, who are after him in order to exact revenge. Mm. And essentially what you have is a group of lovely characters that you will uh, watch make various decisions and you have to decide as an audience whether ethically and morally you would agree with all of it but it's a great yarn a lot of it starts underground in a very odd space and over the course of the eight episodes ironically above ground is safe and below ground is dangerous but by the end below ground is safe and above ground is, is uh, sorry below ground is safe and above ground is dangerous um it's a very hard show actually to pitch in a sentence well i was just about to say i think you're doing a fucking great job because <laughs> okay, i was right. going thanks god if i didn't know this i'd definitely want to watch it and i'm not obviously i'm not just saying that but i do oh. remember when i got sent the first three scripts yeah and it hadn't happened to me for a long time reading scripts because you get to read a lot yeah some are not so great some are mediocre yeah. and the very few are top draw and i remember ending episode one with, especially with what happens at the end of episode yeah, one, yeah. gasping and reaching for episode two straight away and diving back in. Great. And that, for me, yeah. I was already completely yeah. sold. It is great storytelling, mm. and that's the lifeblood of what we do. Yeah. Essentially, it's as simple as that, isn't it? We tell stories, mm. and what Marco Rowe has adapted from the original is a great story. It really does make you want to keep going, find out what happens next. You know, all those cliches are absolutely true, and we managed to do it without explosions at the end of every yeah. episode, you know, where you think, oh, my God, what's going to happen next week? It's all done through this character-driven storyline, and um, uh, I, I think it's really rewarding. And, that, it, and it seems to be appealing to people across the board. Mm -hmm. But it's that investment in those characters, yeah. that's what we're in. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's what people will, will do straight away. Yeah. Because I certainly did when I read it. Okay, well, I hope so. I think they will. Mark Strong, thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. That was really lovely. You enjoy it? Yeah, I don't do a lot of podcasts, I have to say. And well, uh, this was like just having a lovely chat with my mate. Well, that's what it should be. That's what it is. You're welcome <laughs> back anytime. Thanks. Thanks, man. Oh, cheers. Another episode is done. What did I tell you? One of truly, the genuinely nicest blokes. Um, there's no side to Mark at all. He really cares about what he does for a living, and he takes it. He takes it seriously, but he doesn't take everything seriously. He's got things into perspective. He he knows what's what, um, and I love spending time with him. And also, I loved working with him. Now. 
There is a show out right the moment. All episodes have landed, all eight episodes. It's on Sky One, it's on Now TV, it's called Temple. It stars Mark Strong, past Two Shot podcast guest Danny Mays, the wonderful Carice Van Houten. And uh, oh, look, if you haven't heard Danny Mays' podcast episode, go back through the catalogue and listen to that. It's a great companion piece with Mark's episode. Um, and go and watch Temple because it's a really good show. Trust me, you'll absolutely love it. Um, Sky One, Now TV, Temple. Uh, do go and watch it and watch uh, Mark and Danny. They're just phenomenal. They're such a great uh, odd couple casting. It's amazing. Um, what else I've got to tell you? Ah, I have to tell you that next week is episode 99 and then it is the big 100th episode and do we have a guest for you we do we, we do have a guest for you it's a really good guest and i will tell you next week so do send us your messages on twitter we are two shot pod at gmail.com go and tell somebody about this pod go and do you know what go and find five friends who don't know about this podcast and get the phone out and get them subscribed and get them listening Get them starting with somebody who they might know and then let them fly, let them go through the back catalogue. We do that. Go and tell five people and send us a message when you have done. Yet we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. If you want to drop us an old-fashioned email, you can do that. We're twoshotpod at gmail.com. You know what? If you've got a couple of quid every month, just root down the back of the sofa each month. And join us on patreon.com. These episodes are free week in, week out. And as you hear, we don't have any sponsors or anything like that. So it'd be quite nice if you, the listening community, could help us out. So until next week, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the Two Shot Podcast. You take care of yourself. Bye-bye. Two Shot Podcast is presented by me, Craig Parkinson, recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. Our music, our brilliant music, is courtesy of Then Thickens. Cheers. <laughs>